Hello, listeners, and welcome back to Stories in the Dark. This is season three of our spooky little podcast, and our theme this season is Monsters and Mayhem. I hope you enjoy our stories, because we certainly enjoy you. The Artist There's a new show in town, I told Callie, as I watched myself brush my long, dark hair in my vanity mirror. Callie lay in the bed behind me, reading a book bigger than she was, something thick and heavy and serious, her glasses slipping down to the end of her nose. Hmm? she asked, in the language of couples. In our language, it meant I could keep talking and she would decide along the way if she was interested. I kept brushing my hair. She continued reading her book. Downtown, an installation piece, I told her. Part of a larger series. He started in Europe, made quite a splash in Amsterdam and Paris, although I heard London didn't want much to do with him. The English are rather stuffy about art, she replied. She hated Anglophiles, but was, overall, indifferent to the English themselves. Yes, someone apparently disappeared at one of his shows, caused a bit of a fuss. Hmm, she said again, but there was some interest in her tone now. Drugs? Possibly, I said, but I didn't think so. The article had made it all sound rather mysterious. I set the brush down on the vanity table and slipped off my robe before climbing into Callie's large bed. Callie's, not ours. Things weren't ours yet. They were all hers. What about this particular show interests you? She asked, setting the book down at last, giving me her cheek to kiss. The show is about perspective. They said he's trying to do something where the experience of art changes something in the brain of the person who perceives it. Callie ran her fingers through my hair, touching the waves and then drawing her pale hand back. That's ambitious, she said. Every artist wants to change something about the viewer, but that, that's next level if you can do it. Unspoken, the truth lay in bed between us. I had been struggling with my art. Critics said I didn't have the eye. I wasn't saying anything new. I didn't have anything to say. I was starting to think they were right. If I only saw what everyone else saw, how could I say anything new at all? Something stirred inside me, a little fluttering that felt like hope. Maybe I would see things differently after the show. Maybe he could change me, transform me, give me an artist's eye. Callie, with her 20 years that she had on me, with everything she had, knew this and never said anything. She'd seen more art growing up in the city than I could imagine. She collected artists like other people collect art, but she never let me feel my failure. Still, I worried. 
If I couldn't do it, if I couldn't make it, she would let me go. Another small thing with small wings fluttering into the sky. And she would move on to the next, trying to find magic. I'll get his tickets, she said as she turned off the lights. We'll go tomorrow night. The line was terrible. I kept expecting Callie to complain, but she didn't. I'll wait in line for brunch or for a new show, she always said. But really, I'd never seen her wait for anything. She never needed to. But this show didn't have VIP tickets, and the line moved slowly. I was lucky to get tickets at all, she said, eyeing the crowd. It was practically sold out. She nodded at a few acquaintances. I recognized some of the media passes, Vogue and The New Yorker. The crowd looked like what you'd expect for a new show with a lot of buzz. Typical scenesters dressed in black and smoking. A few influencers taking selfies and trying to look serious about art. Embarrassing. Were my own intentions any less embarrassing, though? The line moved slowly. I heard there have been more than one disappearance at his shows, she said. Really? Yeah, I checked him out. Johan Eriksson? They shut down his London show after one night, and they almost didn't let him leave Paris at all. He was under suspicion, apparently. Suspicion of what? She shrugged. That's the problem. What are they accusing him of, exactly? Kidnapping? I thought it was all hype. Something to help get more buzz for his shows. Create a little urban legend for himself. But it sounds like there might be something there. I laughed, but it sounded false. Shrill. The night had me on edge. The moon was just a sliver in the sky and the smoke was giving me a headache. Everyone was too cheerful. The line was too long. I wish I had come by myself during the day. Callie reached out and took my hand. It's perfectly fine, she reassured me and squeezed my hand softly. We're almost there. It was true. Somehow we were near the head of the line and the smoke and the sound seemed to drop away. Callie started talking about work and distracted me until it was time. The kid at the door scanned our tickets. One at a time, though, he said, already looking beyond us. What? Only one at a time. Artist orders, he said, and jerked a thumb at a sign on the wall. All great art depends on the observer to perceive it. The purpose of this installation is to change the viewer, but it must also be remembered that the observer can, at the same time, change the object being perceived. It is vitally important that only one person enter and perceive the room at a time. That's odd, I whispered to Callie, but really, I envied the artist his assurance. A bit pompous, she whispered back and gave my hand another squeeze. A buzzer went off, and the kid nodded at us and waved me in. I hesitated, looking at Callie. This is your thing, she said. It's okay to go first. She kissed me quickly and let go of my hand. The kid rolled his eyes and pulled open the door for me. 
How long do I have? I asked him, suddenly panicked I'd stay too long, or rush my way through it. You'll know when it's time, he told me, and suddenly there was something older in his eyes, in his voice. Something older in knowing, something cruel. He was closing the door on me before I could say anything it was done. The door was closed behind me, and in front of me was another door with another sign on it. Step in and through, it said, hand-lettered, and as I read it, a gentle chime sounded. I touched the door handle and it was freezing. I quickly turned and pushed and stepped through, hurrying to let go and wipe my hand on my jeans. I was glad I'd worn jeans. The room was cold, colder than fall in New York. My breath frosted in front of me. The air smelled crisp and fresh, nothing like the city. It smelled like pine and snow and water, and before me stretched a great lake or ocean. I stood upon its shores, and its waves lapped gently at the sand in front of me, and beside me there were pine trees, real pine trees, and it was strange because I was in a room downtown, but no, here I was, at the edge of a forest near a lake or the sea, and above me the sun shone, bright as day, as if I had left the night behind me when I stepped inside. The door was gone. There was no door behind me, no door in front of me, just this sea. I had not seen anyone exit the room. I'd assumed the exit was on the other side, that there was another door that spilled us out into an alley behind, where we could talk about the show. Wherever the door was, it was far away now. I smelled a campfire. I felt the falling snow. And as I stood there under the light of a sun I didn't recognize, the air warmed, and I grew positive that I was on a beach, a tropical beach with a warm ocean. But I still smelled pine and snow and the campfire. It quickly grew hot in the room. I still thought of it as a room, even though I could not see any walls or doors. I heard a chime, like when I first looked at the door and I remembered the sign, step in and through. Hesitantly, I stepped into the water. It was warm and it quickly soaked my jeans and shoes. I kept walking through the water but it grew no deeper. Instead, I quickly reached the opposite shore. Remember, I could not see another shore when I started. And then there were stone steps, and I was climbing the white stone steps, and the sky turned red, and I found myself crossing a bridge suspended between two large mountain peaks. I say large, but there is no way to convey the size. I looked down and there was no end to the darkness below me. And then, for the first time I looked back, but I did not see the water or the beach or even the pine trees. I only saw a haze. The chime sounded and I faced forward again and I walked on. 
The chime sounded again, and I took it to mean I must hurry, so I did. I hurried across the bridge to the other mountain, but the bridge ended abruptly at a door. The doorknob was warm, and when I opened it, a buzzer sounded, and I spilled out into an alley, a New York alley, and there was a table with a giant carafe of coffee and paper cups. Someone handed me a cup, and I drank the coffee. It wasn't great, but it was warm and familiar, and I drank it and looked at the people around me, chattering about the fantastic illusion of the room. What a great trick, one woman said. Her eyes lit up. How do you suppose he did it? Mirrors, her friend said. I heard he's an absolute wonder with mirrors. Mirrors. I smelled my clothes. They still carried the faint scent of pine and ocean and campfire, and I remembered the way the mountain mist felt on my skin. Mirrors. The buzzer sounded, the door opened, and Callie spilled out laughing and catching my arm. That was marvelous, she said, hugging me. So very clever. The thing with the rain. Her clothes were damp. The couple next to us handed her a cup of coffee and agreed. The rain was brilliant, one of them said, tossing her shoulder-length blonde hair. The thing where the sun seemed to move, said the other, and they all started laughing. I said nothing. I would absolutely do that again, Callie said, squeezing me. Let's go get tapas and talk about it. We found our favorite restaurant almost full, but they sat us at the bar, where we ordered a dizzying number of small plates and glasses of wine. I cannot get enough of these potatoes, Callie said, spearing the last of them, chewing with her eyes closed. And part of me was back in the room. The bridge swaying under my feet, the mountain on the other side, too far. What did you see while you were in there? I asked her. While I wasn't sure what she would answer, I knew it wouldn't be what I saw, what I felt. It was wonderful, she said, signaling to the bartender for another round. It was as if I stood at the edge of a cliff and the sun rose and set. The seasons changed. There was arid desert, and then rain, and then snow, and then the freshness of spring. It was simply incredible. I'm so glad you found it. Our glasses refilled, but I was done with wine. When I lifted the glass, I saw a desert under a blood-red sun. I looked across the restaurant. Instead of a wall a wall I'd seen hundreds of times. I saw stone steps leading into a forest. I blinked and it was gone. I feel like I'm still in the room, I said to Callie, and she blinked at me owlishly, the way she did after three glasses of wine. You're here, she said, and put her hand on my knee. You're here with me. The feeling persisted. The cab home drove through a wall of water. The stairs to our apartment led to a city in the sky. This isn't real, I told myself. None of this is real. That night, I dreamed a boatman came, guiding his way through the reeds with a long pole. 
He drifted up next to our bed and waited, saying nothing. The reeds swayed in the water. I looked down through the water and saw there was no bottom, no end, just clear water through to the end of time. In my dream, Callie woke and sat up. She was wearing a white gown, like an old-fashioned communion dress, something she would never wear in real life. The boatman held out his hand to her. She turned to me, put a finger on my lips, and then took the boatman's hand and stepped into the boat. It swayed. She sat at one end, looking like a child in her white gown, and the boatman turned them around and used his pole to push away from me, away from our life. Callie never looked back. She just sat in the boat, staring ahead, the pole stabbing at that endless water, taking her away from me in the vast silence. In the morning she was gone, her side of the bed cold and empty, her phone on her nightstand. The water and the reeds were gone too. I called around, but no one had seen her. Her absence pressed down on me, the heaviest of weights, deadening the air around me. She'll turn up, they said, but I knew it wasn't true. She'd gone to the place the room showed her, and I couldn't follow her there. The world started coming apart then. I'd try to walk across the street, and a great canyon would open, yawning in front of me, trying to catch my feet. I almost fell in. I opened a door and almost stepped into the ocean. While riding in a cab, a storefront changed, turned into a window, into an acid green world. Nowhere was safe. This went on for weeks, reality twisting and changing in front of me. My nose bled, my head hurt, my vision wasn't right. I kept seeing around corners and couldn't look straight ahead. My dreams were full of knives. I waited for the boatman to come for me, but he didn't. I begged for him to come for me. He didn't. My days were full of nightmares, but my nights were dreamless. I didn't know what else to do, so I went back. I didn't get tickets, I just went. I found the street. I found the door. There was no one there. I knocked and knocked, but no one answered. I opened the first door and walked through. It slammed behind me. There was a sign on the second door. A new sign. The artist has gone, the sign said. The room remains. That was it, the same hand lettering. I stretched my hand out and touched the door. It was cold, too cold. Blood dripped from my nose onto the floor. It flowed like a river under my feet. What did the sign say before? Step in and through. I wondered if I had ever left the room at all. I opened the very cold door. I stepped in.
she was waiting for me.